Hello, and welcome back to The Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-host, Dr. Paul Williams and Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hey, guys. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> Gentlemen, always nice to be with you again. Yes. Uh, good to good to talk to you guys after, actually, in our time, what has been a long, long recording break, but I guess to our audience, uh, we've been on our normal schedule. <laughs> a little peek behind the curtain. Fantastic. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, we should probably explain what this episode is, and uh, I'd also like to say... It's a podcast. <laughs> well, I said this specific episode. We'd, we'd also like to kind of give a, a peek at what's ahead. We have some great episodes lined up for early 2017. Some uh, We have an episode on irritable bowel syndrome, one on obesity, uh, one on neuropathy, and should be doing one on malnutrition coming up here shortly as well which I think will be really interesting. But for tonight, we are going to be doing a 2016 year in review just to go back at some of the, the great learning points uh, that we've had, some of the, a lot of the times where I felt stupid for not knowing things <laughs> uh, and, and just kind of go through everything. So if you're a new listener to the show, this will be uh this will be a nice like introduction. And if you're an old listener, who's heard these shows, I think it'll be value to, valuable to you because of the, uh, the effect of spacing. For your learning, it's good to space out when you, when you hear things. So if you heard some of this stuff a month or a couple months ago, to hear it again will help reinforce that learning. Did, did you just say it, it helps to learn if you space out? If you, yeah. Um, I, think, I think you're using that term wrong, Stuart. <laughs> oh, okay. Just making sure. Because I kind of spaced out for a second. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we. I didn't mean like space out, like when you like daydream in class. I'm talking about the phenomenon of spacing, which I'm pretty sure you're familiar with from uh, from learn uh, from the learning theory. No. Oh yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> I may have spaced out the wrong way. Paul, do you have any snarky comments to make? Uh, no, I'm just gonna stockpile them till the end. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's that's why you're my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> no offense, Stuart. Mm. It's okay. Okay. So I, I thought we could probably just warm up with a little bit of a, some kind of like our best of list of uh, 2016 and uh, maybe, maybe start off with some of our favorite articles from 2016. Yeah. Well, maybe not ones that we found in 2016 though, or maybe that weren't published in 2016. I can't even think right now. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> Okay, Stuart, why don't we start with you? So tell us tell us about your favorite article from, from 2016 or maybe not 2016. <laughs> or maybe one you read in 2016. It's really the world's your oyster, Stuart. <laughs> All right, wonderful. No, so my favorite article is actually uh, the last article that we had mentioned in the, the Hypertensive podcast. It's uh, published in the European Journal of Neurology in 2015, and the, the title says it all. It says, Blood Pressure as a Risk Factor for Headache and Migraine, a Perspective Population-Based Study, which maybe it doesn't say it all. I thought it did, but apparently it doesn't. Anyways, it, it shows a, an inverse correlation between headache, both uh, tension and migraine headache, and uh, blood pressure. Essentially, the higher their blood pressure was, the less likely um, individuals in this epidemiological study were to um, to uh, to have a headache or migraine. So, it, considering the fact that this study uh, included 125,000 people, I think we can essentially put the nail in the coffin and say that headache and blood pressure do not necessarily go hand in hand. Right. This is this is the one that I said I was going to keep in my desk to uh, show to patients when they try to convince me that their headache was caused by high blood pressure. Right. Now, of course, there, there's going to be some confounders with that specific article, but uh, that's not what this podcast is about today. No. I think that's a good one. Paul, what did you have for your favorite of 2016? Was it actually a 2016 article? or? Uh... It's Well, it's it's one I read in 2016 and was actually published in 2016, so I'm, I'm feeling pretty strong about it. Good for you. Good. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks. I, if nothing else, I can follow instructions. Um, but it's it's... Imbalanced insulin action in chronic overnutrition, clinical harm, molecular mechanisms, and a way forward uh, in the Journal of Atherosclerosis, um, written by uh, doctors Williams and Wu, I believe. And it's it's this, I think, at least 30-page review article 
um, that I like a lot, just more because it is one of the most elegantly written things that I've read. So eventually it does devolve into some molecular biology that is way too heady for me, but it's, it basically makes an argument for overnutrition um, as a contributor towards the metabolic syndrome more so than just adiposity as such. And it, it's written beautifully. It's cited exhaustively. There's actually a citation that addresses why tomatoes don't taste as good as they used to. Um, and then there's one of my favorite figures of all time, which is someone's literally sitting as I'm sitting right now in a recliner with their hand in a bag of potato chips, holding a remote control and sort of all the, the various metabolic and cultural contributions to the metabolic syndrome and sort of why it comes around. So it's, it's just, it's, it's written almost like prose. It's really, it's an engaging read and an interesting read and it's, it's worth your time if you have it. Well, now, now I'm feeling uh, shy or embarrassed that my article is uh, about asparagus making your pee smell. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, one of the articles in the British Medical Journal at the end of the year, they always publish these kind of fake studies. And uh, they looked at, they looked at 6,909 6, men and women and looking at who could or couldn't smell the me- metabolites of asparagus when they, when they ate it uh, in their urine. So these people, they, f- they found that about 40% of people can't, they say that their pee does not smell when they eat asparagus. And they, they were, they're calling this asparagus and osmia, meaning uh, they can't smell the metabolites of asparagus in their urine. So they said what that- What are you reading? They said that further studies should be done to try to help these people because they, they don't know what they're missing out on. No I, wonder you don't know what, no wonder you have no clue what Lemire syndrome is. <laughs> well, this is what you're reading. Look, Stuart, I was glad to know that I'm in the 60% who can smell asparagus uh, when when I've what? had it. How, how, how would you even – what? Don't even get me started. So I think uh, I think I win on the article of the year there. Um, sure. Let's... A lot of clinical relevance. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Well, considering you're the host, we're just a co-host. So, yeah, sure, probably. <laughs> what it, uh, all right, guys. Let's, let's move on to – How did they recruit – I think we should talk about the study more. Um, hmm. I, I think no, that my, not. I think my knowledge of the study is, is kind of superficial. So <laughs> <laughs> you could read it yourself if you want to know more about it. Uh, all right. Favorite books of 2016. What do you guys have there? So of course I have how doctors think by Jerome Groupman. I think that this is a wonderful book when it comes to highlighting the different heuristic errors that we, the cognitive heuristic errors that we as physicians make when it comes to uh, misdiagnosis. And I've used these uh, heuristic errors to explain how different residents and medical students have made a misdiagnosis in certain cases. And it, it, it almost works as, as a way to diagnose the problem moving forward with your, um, with your learners. That. That's a a book that I I really have to read. It's it's very high up there on my list of books to get yeah, I, to. I've I've got it at home if you want to borrow it. I do, so I, I will take you up on that. Um uh, I am reading a book I, that I literally just got it for Christmas actually. Good just for based you. on your recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> I I have a book that I would actually recommend to both you guys and pretty much to anyone working in the hospital. So this book's called Multipliers: How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. It's a book by Liz Wiseman. And in this book, she she talks about how there are certain leaders that kind of suck the life out of everyone that works for them. They underutilize their resources available. Give they they have that leader has to be the smartest person in the room, uh, and that they, she calls those people diminishers. And then there's the multipliers, mm. which are the leaders that we should strive to be, where the the leader kind of assesses their team, tries to figure out what people are good at, tries to challenge their team, so that you actually. You, your people like working for you because even though you're challenging them, they feel like their their skills are being utilized, and you're going to get better results out of out of that team. And I think right. in medicine, I, I'm sure we've all been around people that they they have to be the smartest person in the room. And this this book really just kind of makes I think you know anyone could tend to be that way, but I think this book does a really good job of pointing that out and kind of giving giving doctors an idea because leadership is not something you're taught. Like some people go right. straight from high school to college to medical school and they never even have a real job where they're managing people. And then we throw them into these teams where they're expected to be a leader. And I know that I had a lot of deficiencies and still do, mm-hmm. which is why I'm reading books like this. So I think it's a great book. 
And this is also one of the, the reasons why we don't have enough physicians in leadership positions in, in, in politics, for example, and why it, I, I think that us as a, uh, as, a, as, a, as a profession, we don't really have as vocal a voice as we could potentially have otherwise. All right. So I have not one, not two, but three recommendations, um, <laughs> okay. none of which are, of course, published this year. Um, so I, I, I feel like I suffer from an overabundance of nonfiction in my life. So I'm, I'm giving two escapist books. So the first one, Spook Country by William Gibson. He's um, an award-winning uh, science fiction author. He wrote Neuromancer, if you're a fan of the genre. Um, but he wrote this book that it's – the plot is almost kind of immaterial. But the, the feel of it actually really, I think, nicely captures sort of the post-9-11 feeling of paranoia and kind of surreality. Um, that would be reality with surrealism kind of superimposed on it. Like it just – it's a very kind of disorienting book. Um, where there are multiple plots, none of which actually matter that much. It's just sort of more of the feel of how just everything felt kind of off and screwed up um, after September 11th. It's kind of like our podcast. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> if you want pure escapism, Carter Beats the Devil, which I'm sure lots of people have read already, but it's by Glenn David Gold. It sort of looks at uh, – it's a, it's a fictional book, um, but it's about uh, a magician in the 1920s. And sort of it, it does actually – it's based on – the real life magicians of the 1920s and their stagecraft and how they're always trying to one up each other. And it's just, it's just a delightful form of pure historical fiction. That's just a nice form of escapism. And since you guys shamed me into doing something that's actually clinically relevant, <laughs> I'm going to throw out um, evidence-based physical diagnosis by Stephen McGee, ah. which is a spectacular book that not only goes through the physical examination, but tells you which maneuvers actually have, have evidence behind them and really goes nicely into the pathophysiology of why the maneuvers are significant and how they work. So it's it's just a beautiful book that really sort of emphasizes the importance of the physical exam. And moreover, that this physical exam is not just historical and traditional. There's also good science behind it. So it's it's a fantastic book if you're interested in the physical examination for diagnosis. I, I actually recommend the, uh, the the chapter on on blood pressure in that book. It it's 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 actually more exhaustive than I thought it would have been when I first read it and goes over the different maneuvers that you could potentially do to check someone's blood pressure at bedside without having a sphygmomanometer on hand. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it's a great book. And congratulations on nailing the pronunciation of that right out the gate. That was strong. <laughs> work, so. I, I kind of stuttered a little bit. It's okay. <laughs> okay. All right, guys. I think uh, we can move on for favorite apps quickly and then talk we'll talk about our lessons learned before we kind of go through some of the key episodes uh key teaching points from each episode okay so my favorite app from 2016 is the google drive app and uh, i would include with that google docs and google spreadsheet both the the desktop version as well as the as as well as the version on my phone i'm i'm just especially for the show. I'm using that a lot, but I'm also saving my articles there and have them nicely organized. I can access it from anywhere and it's just been invaluable to me. I don't know why I wasn't using it before 2016, but it is uh, certainly if you're not using Google Drive, Google Docs or any of that, I would start, I would, I would check it out. I will start using it next year. (laughs) (laughs) I I know for a fact that you use it already, Stuart, but uh, I appreciate that. (laughs) All right. So what, what about you, Stuart? What do you got? Uh, I'm going to take a pass. I'll come back. Okay. Paul? Yeah, I, I can't remember if we talked about these before, but I really like the MyFitnessPal uh, suite of phone applications, um, particularly for patients. It's a nice way to sort of cajole them into actually logging their daily intake, and it's, it's a great, and, you know, the evidence is behind if you if you log what you eat every day, you just tend to do better with weight loss. And then there's uh, sort of associated apps that go along with this, like the, the map my run, which I personally use that actually you can map your, your route in real time and tell you your pace and your splits and that kind of stuff. So it's, it's a great free application uh, for those patients who have um, the technological savvy uh, to be able to use them if they're interested in weight loss. So it, it, if I had to go by the uh, number of times I've used an app, it's probably gonna be fine. My iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that which so, speaks to your responsibility. And no, attention it speaks to, to my kids. It speaks <laughs> to my kids, my five kids. Anyways, okay. no. Uh, so, in, in all seriousness, I I like the up to date app. Um, now that's because I I'm I'm a subscriber and I'm not not I'm not getting paid anything to to say this, but up to date. But the fact that I can, you know, I, I can earn see me on the fly. Now, granted, it's a, there's a little bit of a, um, you know, how, how honest am I being about the CME, right? So if I if I search for for one thing, do I did I really do you know 1.0 hours of CME on it? 
but in general, I think it's a it's a good reference tool. Maybe not the it's it's not the be all end all when it comes to evidence based medicine, but it certainly is a a decent reference tool to have uh, for pocket re- po- pocket reference. The CME stuff there, it it definitely pays. Like if you're gonna if you're looking up for it, you might as well get the credit that you've that you've done right. the reading there. And it's also just a good place. Uh, it can be a good place to start for the bibliography as well. Like if you right, just want to, it's a great repository. I mean, it's it's beautifully organized, and it's you're going to find what you're looking for fairly quickly. So it's it's nicely organized. It's evidence based enough for sure that I feel at least comfortable using mm-hmm. it as a starting point, if nothing else. So yeah, I agree hundred percent. And I I cha- oh, so I win that one. Okay. <laughs> and I changed my mind about uh, the lessons learned. I think we can we can actually move that to the end of the show. And now I just want to kind of get into the recap, talk about some of the highlights or key teaching points from each episode. And I wanted to start with, it was our second episode, but the uh, first episode we actually recorded, which was the sprint trial and talking a little bit about hypertension here. And, and right. Stuart, what, what did you want to highlight about that about that episode? You know, a, a lot of the things about that uh, that trial in general that maybe we didn't go into a lot of detail in the episode was specifically how biases can impact the results of any large trial or any trial, large or small. And there's there's a lot of biases, even with the sprint trial. Even though it's a landmark trial, we have to understand these biases affect the results that we see in the trial. And also understanding that um, how the trial was performed is going to have a humongous implications on the, the data and how to interpret that data. Specifically with the sprint trial, in this case, the take-home point for me is that it, it's not generalized to my patient population. I don't put my patients in a room by themselves and then check a blood pressure three times and get the average of that blood pressure without a medical personnel present. So we, we just don't do that. We can't do that. And to expect that for all of our large and small clinics would be an overabundance of, uh, of just ex, ex, uh, excess work that we just don't have the time or the ability to do. So I, I think we need to be very careful about taking the results of these trials and just applying them carte blanche uh, to, our, to our practice. And, and with the sprint trial, I think specifically the, the big bias that, that people have pointed to is that it was stopped early. And right. the analogy that was used was if, if, so, if there's a race, the person that's leading early on doesn't always win the race. Exactly. And, and and that's why you really have to be careful of the results when when the trial is stopped early. And if the trial has a small number of events, then it's going to be even more heavily biased than a trial that has has already had a large number of events at the time that it was stopped. Right. And other things that I've read about that trial specifically are that the way that the blood pressure was checked could potentially artificially lower the blood pressure. And so what we may have inadvertently done was to pull away antihypertensives from individuals who would have otherwise have needed needed them. And as you've pointed out before, when we, especially in the hypertensive urgency episode, that patients, we, we know that if we don't treat high blood pressure, it leads to heart failure. So the we see this increased um, incidence of cases of heart failure failure in the lower or in, in the higher blood pressure target uh, uh, population, but we would expect that if we start taking away diuretics for an elderly patient population, for example. The whole thing about this sprint trial is that we the, the way that we measure blood pressure does matter, and I think a lot of the mm-hmm. times when the blood pressure gets ma- measured on the hospital wards versus how it gets measured in the patient's home versus how it gets gets measured in clinic is different. And I think consistency in your measurements and trying to target a consistent measurement when everyone knows that when we're using a scale, you don't just, you don't go, you go by the same scale. You try to weigh yourself at the same time of day. And most patients get that. But with blood pressure, I think people for some reason forget to to do that, that you really do want to use a consistent measuring tool. And you also have to frequently check that tool to make sure that it's actually working properly. Right. So consistent measurements are oftentimes more applicable than accurate measurements. For example, you're not going to you're not going to float an an arterial line to check someone's blood pressure when they come into the office, even though that may be more accurate. It's just not it's just not acceptable. So understanding that perfect is oftentimes the enemy of good. And so, you know, even though it may not be perfect, the way that we check our blood pressures in the outpatient setting, that should be how we apply the results of any trial. We shouldn't use some artificial method to check someone's blood pressure. I'm not so sure I agree 
necessarily well you guys know that i love the sprint trial so i completely understand your point that they're going to get a different blood pressure than we would get but the fact that theirs is going to be more accurate i just i find if find fault with i but 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 if you if you at least believe sort of the thrust of the trial and i understand your your concerns with it i will say that i i'm not as not as excited about those things my takeaway point from the sprint trial at the very least is and i think that uh, Matt and I talked about this uh, during the time of that particular podcast. It's just I'm probably less enthusiastic about taking away blood pressure medications in my older patients that are at risk for ASCVD. Like, if anything, if I took away nothing else from sort of our discussion and just from the sprint trial in general, it's not necessarily changing the numbers so much, but just being a little bit less enthusiastic about withdrawing medications or being permissive with hypertension for the older patients, I, I think, is the thing that I took away from it more than anything else. And, and Paul, to speak to your point, I think it does... If if people think that the blood pressures were artificially um, artificially lower in the sprint trial, then they were then that means they were over they were overestimating the control they got potentially. But right, and but that, that, that would that's, still that's argue that would still argue that lower blood pressures are safe because if if someone's blood pressure is measuring in the one twenties and it's an overestimate, then and there and that person's doing just fine, then then it still does argue that lower blood pressures are okay. And I. I have not been, if I have a healthy patient, uh, someone in their 70s whose blood pressure is in the 120s, I'm not going to back off on medications, especially if that patient feels fine. I, I, do, think right. that, I do think that the jury is still, is still out on the exact blood pressure target. It, maybe the sprint trial has uh, confused things a little bit more, than, a, a little bit more in, in some regards, but... I, th- I think that we know it does show that low blo- lower blood pressure, at least we know, is safe. Um, st- th- st- what Stuart was arguing, I think, is mostly that there may have been the mortality benefit may have been overestimated because patients yes. who probably still needed their diuretic might have been taken off their diuretic, and that might have right. led to some some higher blood pressures outside of the office. So yeah, yeah. So a, a a patient who presents to your office and the way that we check our blood pressure in the office, maybe normally it would be 140, um, with uh you know coming in the office checking a blood pressure, one arm when they first sit down be 140 over 90, right? But in the sprint trial, with the way that they check the blood pressure, it could potentially artificially lower their blood pressure, the systolic by anywhere from 10 to 20 millimeters of uh, of mercury, which is what I've read in some sources. I don't know what the truth to that is. So they they normally come in and you check their blood pressure and it's 140 over 90, but we've, we've put them in a quiet room, we've checked their blood pressure three times, and we've received the average, and so we've artificially lowered their blood pressure to 120 over 70, just to give you a, a, a random number, right? So then we're going to take these patients and we're going to randomize them into, into two groups. One that has strict blood pressure control, 120 over 70, one that, that does not, one that's the standard 140 over 90. But the way they're checking the blood pressure is, are, is already artificially lowering it. So someone who normally has a blood pressure 140 over 90, when they come to your clinic, we're checking it, it's lower, we're taking away a medication they may have needed otherwise, we're causing um, cases of heart failure in those patients that were taking away a medication. And the first medications we're going to take away in an elderly pa- patient population are diuretics. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I still think it's just your contrarian streak. You know, when you say artificially lowering, I feel like you're just actually making it closer to what their blood pressure is outside of the doctor's office. So I just, I don't, to me, it's not a valid argument, but I, I completely understand your concern. But no trial is is following what their blood pressures are. Well, aside from ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, no large trial like the Lancet trial is following their their blood pressure at home. It's 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 in the clinic, and we're basing our treatment decisions based on measurements in the clinic, not at home. Yep, all fair. I, I'm less swayed. It's it's obviously a very controversial thing. I think that uh, it would be nice if whatever JNC nine ends up being, if they give specific recommendations on how we're all going to measure blood pressures going forward, and uh, and and kind of give us some more recommendations on how we should be following this. But it's clearly controversial. Okay, I I think we need to move on because we're. Uh, we could probably do a whole show, and we probably should do a whole show, maybe with a third, uh, maybe with a guest on on this on this topic. Paul, we're we're talking about high blood pressure. So for for the hypertensive urgency episode, what was the what was the main thing that you wanted to remind our our listeners about from that episode? I think probably one of the most important points was one that you made that I was just going to let float out there. That probably. When you're actually worrying about blood pressure, the important thing is to actually check and make sure you have the right blood pressure first. So actually, when I was talking about physical exam, I think you brought up the point 
just to make sure that you're repeating and double checking that blood pressure that's given to you from your from your triage staff, which I think is a fantastic point. Um, so making sure the patient's seated, making sure both feet are on the floor, their legs are not crossed. Um, you're not doing a gigantor cuff on your 94 pound patient who's wearing a coat, you know, just making sure that everything is sort of set up so that you have the most accurate blood pressure possible. And then I think the other point that we sort of iterated and reiterated is just, it's knowing, knowing your patient is important. And if you don't know, that can sort of affect how you triage them. So if you know for sure that someone's been riding a blood pressure in 180s over hundreds and they're that way every time they've seen you for the past three years, that's a less alarming patient than someone you're meeting in isolation with that same blood pressure who says, well, maybe sometimes I get chest pain. I feel like you have to treat those things very, very differently. And then I think that the takeaway point always is that when you're, and this is all obviously for, for, um, elevated blood pressure, not hypertensive emergency, but when you're tweaking or adjusting medications do so with the future in mind, you're not treating the number, you know, you're treating, um, a disease. So when you, you know, when you treat the high blood pressure, treat it with medication, you're going to continue for the long haul, either adjust the dose of medication they're already on or add something you have every intention of continuing. Don't just throw a, a hydralazine or, or a clonidine at them because that's probably not going to help anything at all except make you feel better for the next eight hours. Right. right. And, and from the inpatient side, which is where we commonly see these short acting one-off medications used, it's, you, you really have to think about is this patient volume overloaded? Is this patient in pain? Are they anxious? Are they stressed? There's there's probably a reason why that blood pressure is elevated in inpatients. Did they miss their medications because they got admitted to the hospital and they were in the ER for eight hours? Think about those things before you react and push an IV medication, which could hurt a patient or give a short acting med when maybe the real thing you need to do is give their long acting medication or go up on something that they're already taking. Exactly right. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say one thing that, that may be beneficial as well is just delineating in your, your own progress notes for your own PCM patients what your goal blood pressure is for that patient. So that way you have some idea of where they are going forward as well. So I think we've, we've talked about a lot about blood pressure, and that episode is pretty fresh in everyone's mind. Let's, mo- let's move on to um, another topic, anticoagulation, which was also one of our first episodes of 2016, where we talked about the novel, I guess now they're calling them the direct oral anticoagulants because they're no longer new or novel. Yeah, we so, are DOACs now. We're DOACs. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. DOACs instead of NOACs. So I, I think some of the take-home points we have from that episode are just to be cognizant of some of the uses of these medications that they they're, they're useful, but approach them with caution, Un- understanding some of the pitfalls, specifically in the differences between the way that factor 10A inhibitors work and the direct thrombin inhibitors. Now, I- again, I- if you've listened to the episode, you know that I have some concerns with Pradaxa. Um, take it with a grain of salt, certainly, but uh, also understand that pharmacology is important and understand that there's a reason why, for example, one medication might have more GI side effects than another medication. In this case, Pradaxa has a carboxylic acid group, a COOH group on it. And some of the uh, the the data suggests that uh, patients who are on a PPI have between a 15 and 30% reduced absorption. Now, none of this has been studied, so the question is, is it clinically relevant or not? Just understanding that that data is out there may uh, change your decision to put a patient on Pradaxa or, uh, versus a... Uh, factor 10A inhibitor. Um, Also understanding that some patients may not tolerate Coumadin. Uh, For example, patients who have had a Roux-en-Y bypass or have uh, regional ileitis, Crohn's disease, for example, may not be the best patients to put on a a vitamin K um, um, uh, on on, on Coumadin because of their inability to absorb uh, fat-soluble vitamins. And one thing that I recommend is using the Spark tool that's at www.sparc.com. T-O-O-L.com to uh, use to compare the different anticoagulants. You can put your patient's demographics in, and it'll uh, put it all in a tabular format. You can show it to your patients and explain the differences between the different anticoagulants and which one they may provide, derive more benefit from versus uh, increased risk for GI bleed. Yeah, that is that is a very helpful tool. I had not been using it uh, actually before we did that episode, and it, it has been helpful both in the teaching clinic and also just for teaching patients. Um, a lot of people have an easier time with things when you pull up that visual tool. I, I The one other thing I wanted to say on anticoagulation, and this is written about quite a bit if you um, if you're reading on the topic, the we we commonly overestimate 
how beneficial it is to put the older, sicker patients on oral anticoagulation, whether it's warfarin or, or the, the, the DOAX. And the reason there is the older and sicker somebody is, in general, their CHADS VAST score is going to be higher, and they're probably going to have a greater net benefit from being on warfarin or a DOAC. And a lot of the times we wimp out there, there was one article which we had cited in the, in this study, which was statistically they estimated that a patient that the incidence of intracranial hemorrhage is actually pretty low. We we commonly estimate it to be a lot higher in our minds for whatever reason, probably because it's so dramatic when you do see it. But they they estimated maybe 295 falls would need to happen in order for the risks of anticoagulation to outweigh the benefits um, in these older, sicker patients. Yeah, and and, and I've actually used that in the teaching clinic before um, just to give some idea of how many times someone have to fall in order to cause one intracranial hemorrhage from one of these anticoagulants. Now, now, a lot of this... This information is derived from being on an anticoagulant, not with an antiplatelet agent. So we have to keep that in mind as well. Um, but uh, so the, the way that I that the easiest way to, for me to explain it is that if your patient is falling more than once per day, or fa- falling once per day rather, then that patient is someone who probably shouldn't be on a, on a uh, anticoagulant. But beyond that, as long as they uh, are not falling more than once per day, you know, I think that it's it's probably safe to consider putting them on it. Now, if someone's falling weekly, okay, yeah, you might want to consider. Um, uh, drawing back on the anticoagulation, but uh, you know, I, I think that the the if you look at the overall benefit from putting someone on a, a DOAC or a NOAC or Coumadin, whatever however you want to to say it, um, you know, I, I think that those benefits probably outweigh the uh, the risks of putting them on that medication. There's even a study that looks at. Um, I can't remember w- when or where it was published off the top of my, ha- my head. Now, we can put this in the show notes that looks at putting patients on Coumadin for heart failure and actually uh, tabulates them based on their CHADS-VASC2 score um, for heart failure but not for AFib and then um, following them longitudinally looking at their mortality and morbidity benefit uh, with, on Coumadin for heart failure. And we we might end up doing another episode on anticoagulants and maybe dual antiplatelet therapy in twenty in twenty seventeen because I, I do feel like it's just such a topic, uh, such a big topic, and something that people still are confused about. And I still have a couple gray areas that I'd really like to probe uh, an expert's opinion on. So. Yeah, there's a couple of large trials that are that are currently out there that haven't been that haven't finished yet that look at anticoagulation for like coronary artery disease, uh, heart failure, and looks at morbidity and mortality long term. I think that those are going to be definitely going to be game changing moving forward. We may see a lot more patients on uh, the direct oral anticoagulants um, versus aspirin and Plavix. All right. So the next topic that we wanted to kind of revisit was fibromyalgia. We talked with Dr. Daniel Claw from the University of Michigan. On he is an expert, basically an inter the international expert on chronic pain. And I, there were just so many things from this episode that I thought were really helpful. Uh, the reason we did this episode is because uh, we we see a fair amount of fibromyalgia at Cashlack Memorial. And we really, Cash I felt there, <laughs> I really felt there was a need to, to get into this a little deeper. So one of the big take homes for me was that when, when someone with rheumatoid arthritis or, or lupus, um, when they've had that disease for 10 or 20 years, they can actually develop fibromyalgia, a fibromyalgia like syndrome on top of that, that these things can go, go together. Basically the idea there is that anyone who has had long standing chronic pain, that chronic pain can become centralized where the brain where the brain starts to amplify any pain signal and even non-painful signals can get interpreted as pain. Uh, that is sort of the idea of what's going on in fibromyalgia. And there is some evidence there is some evidence that the neurotransmitters are out of whack um, on studies done looking at lumbar punctures and measuring the levels of of, of certain uh, transmitter neurotransmitters. The the 2011 
American College of Rheumatology criteria recommend that you use the widespread pain score and the symptom severity score instead of the the old tender point exam to, to diagnose fibromyalgia. And this is great because as an internist or as a, as a family doc, um, just general practitioner, you can actually diagnose fibromyalgia on your own. You don't have to refer all these people out to, um, you don't have to refer them all out to rheumatology. That being said, Dr. Claw said that if if a patient has never had the workup, everyone deserves at least one workup to rule out some sort of underlying systemic inflammatory process as the cause of their pain. Paul Stewart, did anything anything that you took from that one that you wanted to to highlight? No, not particularly. You you hit all the all the salient points. I feel like it's. I, I think it's an important point to remember that it really it doesn't have to be either or and that fibromyalgia is, is so often comorbid with other sort of chronic pain syndrome. So I think that's just a great point to kind of keep in the back of your mind. It doesn't have to be just one or the other. It can certainly be both. And and there some people can have this almost subclinical. They might not score high enough on the on the 2011 criteria to meet the criteria for fibromyalgia. But if they have that constellation of symptoms, fatigue, memory problems, sleep disturbances, and, and multifocal pain, then you have to start thinking about this could be early fibromyalgia, start educating the patient, and start start using some of the non-pharmacologic therapies because the pharmacologic therapies really, on a scale of 10, the pharmacologic therapies only get you about two points or even less in clinical trials. So if someone's at an eight, that that non-pharm that pharmacologic therapy is only going to bring them down to a six. So you have to do other things. You have to work on their sleep. You have to work get getting them active and um treating any kind of mood disorders there, or else you are not going to be able to get that person's fibromyalgia under control. And and part of what what has vindicated this in, in trials, Dr. Claw and the the University of Michigan uh, Chronic Pain Center, they have um, studied this with, they have a website called fibroguide.com. And that website is actually as effective or more effective when patients go through all the modules on there at, at controlling the symptoms of fibromyalgia. There's also a great YouTube video, which uh, we'll link to in the show notes called Chronic Pain, Is It All in Their Head? It's Dr. Claw doing... I believe he does this either weekly or monthly at University of Michigan, where he talks to a bunch of patients with chronic pain, explains it to them in detail, um, talks about the different therapies that can be used. And that kind of education is just invaluable in in treating these patients. There's actually a really good video by the, it's, it, I think it was produced by the uh, Department of Veterans Affairs. It's called What is Chronic Pain? Uh, we can also link to that one in, in the uh, the show notes, but it's a it's actually a, a, a it's it's one of those those chalk talks or chalkboard. I, I don't know exactly what it is. The whiteboard talks, um, and it's something that's that's uh, shown to to patients. It's a five minute video that specifically describes and explains what chronic pain is and and how you have this this feed forward cycle and how to shut that that uh, cycle off and that opioids are not always going to be the 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 best option for uh, shutting off that chronic pain. And I've actually taken to uh, that. That's great. That's a shorter video, which I, I I definitely need to get that link from you because the uh, I've started to give this to patients as homework just to kind of get them invested. And when they come back the next time, I ask them, "Did you watch the video? Did you did you go to the website? What have you been doing to help yourself?" Because I I tell them up front that I am not going to be able to completely get rid of their pain unless they are actively working with me to uh, to do some of these non pharmacologic therapies. Yeah, and that's specifically what this goes over, like exercise and other modalities, uh, acupuncture and uh, different things to do to to basically stop that that cycle. So moving on to the next topic, we did a couple episodes on functional medicine, which is something that I had wanted to learn about for quite a while now, and we ended up talking with Dr. El Yemen from um, Absolute Health down in Florida. And some of the some of the key teaching points there, most of them are food related, and uh, the the things we talked about were elimination diets and how those can help your patients and potentially heal them without even prescribing any medications. I thought that this was just had a lot of practical practical wisdom in there. He he talked about the eighty twenty rule where you you try to at least make eighty percent of your food come from uh, fresh sources. 
and not not be processed food because processed food is where we get a lot of things that might cause intolerances um, and it might be might be causing some symptoms that patients have. Um, not everyone has to eat organic. You can you can use the clean fifteen from the Environmental Working Group website. The 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 vegetables, the clean fifteen fruits and vegetables, ones that you don't necessarily need to buy organic, and then the dirty dozen, those that are heavily. Uh, those where pesticides are used pretty heavily where you probably should be buying organic. And uh, I think that episode was just really um, very valuable just uh, for for physicians. I, I recommend it to either colleagues or to patients um, for teaching purposes. Sorry, I was spacing out. <laughs> You're the functional medicine yeah. king, Stuart. So what, uh, what was your favorite, what was your favorite uh, take-home point from Dr. El Yemen? I think it was more the, uh, uh, the, the, the whole SIBO and restless leg syndrome was, was interesting. And it was, uh, you know, kind of tied in together what I had already, um, kind of bought into about the iron deficiency and restless leg syndrome and gave, a a, uh, a reason for that. And to me, understanding the, the root cause in, this is what I go over with residents oftentimes is just understanding the root cause for, for the pathophysiology is important for being able to shut off whatever stimulus is, is leading to whatever problem that you're seeing. And so, you know, that, 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 that to me is kind of what, what underlines and underscores functional medicine in, in a nutshell is understanding that root cause. And so to me, I, I find it to be, um, pivotal, uh, to the, to the, practice of medicine in general. And what you're referring to there, the restless leg, the idea that the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, causes malabsorption of iron, which right. then which then can lead to restless leg syndrome through that right. the whole iron pathway uh, where, yes. where you're developing deficiencies of certain neurotransmitters, which you probably have memorized, which I do not. <laughs> I, I, I have it. I have it memorized. You have the tryptophan and phenylalanine uh, hydroxylase pathways. But uh, we can talk about that when we talk about depression in the future, because I will school you back and forth like a little kid. <laughs> okay. Um, All of that sounds like the worst thing I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> which, which one? The, uh, the phenylalanine and uh, tryptophan hydroxylase path pathways? And the schooling, all of it, just just top to bottom. It just sounds terrible. <laughs> okay, I apologize. <laughs> okay, Paul, let's uh, let's move on to something that you're more interested in. So, cholesterol. We spoke with uh, we spoke with Dr. Peter Jones from Baylor and the um, uh, National Lipid Association. Yeah, and he was he was spectacular. He was just such a, a delightful and knowledgeable guest to talk to. So that and the things that I took away. I think that it will actually affect my practice is sort of, I think one of the things we talked about length is that when you're, when you're treating um, hyperlipidemia or even just trying to, when you're treating with statins, probably something's better than nothing if you feel like a statin's absolutely warranted. So, you know, it's, we run into statin intolerance a lot, whether perceived or actual. And, you know, one of the points he made is if you can get it in three times a week, that's still better than just nothing at all. Um, so I, I'm now a little bit more permissive with my statin dosing, when I, when I have a patient who's either concerned about potential side effects or um, feels that maybe that's the reason for their sort of various aches and pains, I'm much more prone to sort of let them do it three times a week or even twice a week if I feel like just getting some statin to them as a possibility rather than just kind of giving up on it entirely as a class of medications. I think the other thing that we talked about is, you know, there's some theoretical concerns about pushing LDLs too low. And he sort of reassured me that we don't have to worry too much about that. So I've stopped worrying too much about that. Um, and, you know, even though there's sort of novel agents on the horizon that show some promise, um, probably statins are going to be king for a while. They're, they're cheap. They have 20 year safety record at this point. Um, and we know a lot about them. So, I, you know, even though there's, there's other medications that are exciting and fun to talk about, probably for the next short while, at least statins are going to be what we use to, to manage, um, high cholesterol. I wanted to break in. You're talking about lowering LDL. How low can you go? I, I really think that my key take-home point there was you should, when you're talking about a high-intensity statin, they're assuming that you're going to drop the LDL by 50% or more. So for the high-risk patients, when I'm if I'm actually worried about them, it's not the set it and forget it that I guess everyone kind of hoped it was or many people have been treating it as. 
I actually look and say, okay, if they started from an LDL of 160 and we put them on high-intensity statin and they're only down at 120, either they're not taking their medication or it's not effective enough and I'm going to be exploring other options, whether it's going up on the intensity of the, like going up on the dose of the statin, Lipitor 40 to 80 or, or switching to Crestor or um, maybe even exploring the PCSK9 inhibitors because right. I, I'm not just setting it and forgetting. I'm looking what percentage reduction in LDL did I get in those higher risk patients? And that was a revelation. Right. Or even adding a non-statin agent. I mean, it's, that's certainly an option. You could always throw it as endosetamide if you feel it's absolutely warranted. Yeah, definitely. Right. Or, or if you're at, uh, if you, if you work in, at Cash Moore Hospital, you, you can potentially go to Repatha, even though, uh, it's super expensive. Have you successfully gotten that yet? I know you've been trying. Oh, so, oh, so, so several times actually. And, and so I've spoken with some of our cardiologists and they've told me that once they put a patient on Repatha. So I, again, kind of backing up one of the concerns I've got with Repatha, that's Ivalicumab, is the fact that there's no mortality studies at this point that show any significant mortality benefit putting patients on Repatha. Um, having said that, there's also no, no mortality studies for many other statins that we use. Um, there is for statins in general. So here's the concern, though, is is without this data, how, I don't know what to base it off of. But what, what I'm told, though, is that they put patients on Repatha and they'll go in and repeat the cardiac catheterization and find that, that the atherosclerotic plaques that they had before, or the fatty streaks that they were able to identify with uh, endovascular ultrasound or whatever other uh, modalities that they're using at that time, they're gone by the time they go back in. They're seeing that these plaques and fatty streaks are reversing before their eyes, essentially. And so that, to me, says, okay, well, even though their LDL is being reduced by 60 to 70% with Repatha, we're actually seeing some some tangible benefits on the uh, the macro level. And we're trying to get somebody to come on and talk to us about PCSK9 inhibitors. Right. Uh, you can expect that episode probably February or March of 2017. I'm not sure that any of the mortality data will be back yet, but I, I believe in 2017, 2018, 2019, we're expecting some of those trials to come in with mortality data. I'm, I'm in constant contact with uh, one of the, the farm reps to try to get the data as soon as it's published. So we'll be one of the, the first... Uh, uh, facilities to have that data, hopefully. Yeah, definitely, definitely a topic that we're very interested in. So we we do plan on doing another lipid episode in the in the very near future. Okay, Paul, what what else did you want to say? I think you I cut you off when you were about to make another point about cholesterol. Oh no, I, I think the last point that we that we touched on is that as fantastic as statins are, as you're approaching the end of life, they become wildly unnecessary for the most part, and there's probably not a whole lot of mortality benefit to them. And in fact, you may actually get mortality benefit from by discontinuing them. So it's, um, so you don't have to let them ride on for all of eternity. They don't have to be varied with their statins. You can, you can probably safely discontinue them if you're worried about quality of life and pill burden, um, as you approach that time and, and it would be a benefit and not of harm. And that, that study was uh, 2015 or 2016. And unfortunately it was only, I think patients with a one month to one year life expectancy, but I still think it's it's a, a bit of a gray area if someone's five to ten years out what you do. But certainly if someone has a, a short, like, uh, months to maybe just a few years left, you, you can probably stop it without, um, without affecting their quality of life. But it's still something that I think people struggle with. Right. It's just not, not as black and white as we'd like it. But sort of reassuring and kind of reiterates what we already feel is kind of right already, so, which is nice. The insomnia episode with Dr. Carl DeGromji from Thomas Jefferson University. He's the director of the sleep lab there and does a lot of uh, speaking on the topic uh, nationally, probably internationally. He, he, t he told us a lot of stuff. I think some of the highest yield things he told us, um, non-pharmacologic therapy is definitely uh, as good or better than, than pills for for insomnia. So somebody doing CBT, they might have lasting benefits one to two years after they complete that cognitive behavioral therapy versus somebody who's on a medication. When they stop the medication, if they haven't been doing some sort of behavioral therapy with along with that, their 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 sleep is probably going to drop off. They might revert back to where they're they're having sleep troubles again. And one of the things that that he had talked about was uh, there's actually online online 
companies where you can get the CBT there because not every not everyone has the resources to to get cognitive behavioral therapy for their patients having trouble with sleep. As far as medication management, he recommended splitting things into sleep problems with sleep initiation, in which case you should use the shorter acting agents, which are uh, Zaleplon, which is Sonata, or Zolpidem, which is Ambien. You could also use Romelteon. And then for sleep maintenance, you can use the extended release Ambien or Azopiclone, which is Lunesta. And the newer agent, which uh, I was most interested in, is Doxepin. I guess I said newer agent, but it's it's newly newly approved for sleep is doxepin in low doses, either three or six milligrams, and that can be used for sleep maintenance. Doxepin was initially, I guess, an anti-anxiety uh, medication, but you can you can get it now. It's it, There's a brand name, or you can use a uh, the child's version with a medicine dropper, and you can you can give a three or a six milligram dose that way, which might be cheaper than buying the the branded three milligram tabs. That was a point I found super helpful, just because it's particularly if you have patients that have concerns for uh, if they have a history of substance abuse or you're concerned about the addiction potential. Doxepin's a nice choice uh, as well. So it's I, that was that was something that I've actually that changed my practice quite a bit since uh, since that episode. What's up with this my mistake intermittent versus nightly dosing? When we were talking to Dr. DeGromji, I was telling him that so I am averse to giving Ambien and the other sleep medications because I just feel like they can be too much of a crutch, but what he was suggesting is that when a patient has daily problems with sleep initiation or sleep maintenance, if you tell that person, "Here's 10 tabs of Ambien, only take it on certain nights when you really know, I want you to stretch this, take it only when you really, really need it. That person is going to start to become anxious, like, should I take it tonight? Should I not take it? Will I be able to sleep? And you can actually make things worse for that patient. Hmm. The kind of patient where you should recommend intermittent dosing is a patient who has only intermittent or episodic trouble with sleep. For instance, if if I had a big test tomorrow and I know I won't be able to sleep because that big test is coming up, I would I would take a uh, a dose of Ambien. For the patient who has your has your nightly problem with sleep, you should start them on a certain dose of a sleep agent and also you should start doing something like a cognitive behavioral therapy or non-pharmacologic management. And while you're ramping up that non-pharmacologic management, they can take they can take the Ambien and then they can wean themselves off over the next several months as they start to develop confidence in their ability to sleep and learn the skills and behaviors that are going to promote sleep. That sounds wonderful. All right, next. <laughs> I'm gl- I, I thought I made a good point. I'm glad that you uh, I'm glad you liked it. I, I wanted to just briefly touch on um, the osteoporosis episode. So Stuart and I were on the, were, talked with Dr. Pauline Camacho from the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, ACE, and she had some great teaching points. She's the president of ACE, and she also had just gotten done completing the 2016 guidelines for osteoporosis uh, treatment and prevention in postmenopausal women. Um, which were released in September. So, Stuart, what was what were the main teaching points that you took from that one? All, all snarkiness aside, the whole thing about PTH kind of threw me for a bit of a curveball, and that is essentially that if you are going to treat someone's low vitamin D, you're going to treat them to at least 30 um, nanograms per milliliter, and then you don't just stop there. So you want to check a PTH, and if they have secondary hyperparathyroidism at that point, you want to keep treating their PTH in order to normalize the hyperparathyroidism, which is almost a, you know, not really a surrogate marker for bone turnover, but a surrogate marker for uh, low vitamin D. Now you can check surrogate markers for bone turnover, which we haven't been doing in our clinic. Um, In fact, I don't know of any clinic aside from maybe a um, endocrinology clinic that's going to be doing this on a routine basis, but there are some bone uh, turnover markers that you can check as well. And we also talked about right, the, the timing t- of the TLO peptides. Yeah, we don't check those, but and there are some. Uh, th- there's also some intricacies about the timing of starting a bisphosphonate after hip fracture that we talked about. Essentially, not to start it initially, but waiting a few weeks before initiation of therapy. Um, but first of all, to, to at least treat them with the calcium and vitamin D at that time. Um, 
but yeah, so I, I honestly think that this 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 episode, the osteoporosis episode, was one of the the more the more meaty episodes that we had, and also one of the ones that I think is definitely high yield. You should listen to this episode bar none if you have not listened to the, any of the episodes that we have. And the the guidelines from Ace have really great infographics. Some of them kind of showing graphs showing. Um, just how rare some of these things like osteonecrosis of the jaw or atypical femur fractures really are. And they compare them to other common things like car accidents. And um, they show that they show that you're more likely to be like murdered than you are to have an atypical femur fracture uh, if you're taking a bis- bisphosphonate. My, my big take-home point from that episode is that drug holidays are uh, – you, you don't get just one drug holiday that lasts forever. If somebody – if if someone's on drug holiday, you should be checking their DEXA scan yearly. If they if their bone density drops off compared to their prior bone density, then you should restart therapy either with the same agent or a an agent from another class. And you can keep you can someone can be on bisphosphonates multiple courses, and the and the the courses for oral can be anywhere from five to ten years, and for IV can be anywhere from three to six years, and they would have a drug holiday in between, and if they start to fail that drug holiday, which could mean a fracture or could mean a drop-off in bone density, could mean that they start long-term steroids, then you would put the person back on therapy. And to me, that was a revelation because I was considering patients who had had, had 10 years of, of bisphosphonate. I was saying, okay, you're done. But apparently, that is not recommended, which was a big mistake I was making. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> That's okay. I think we were all making that mistake as well. And that was pretty eye-opening. And uh, it, it's it's changed how I interact with the residents as far as recommendations to restart uh, bisphosphonate therapy or not. So, Paul, Paul, anything to add? Nope. I think those are all the high points. I, I actually work with someone who just stops after three years because she's just not convinced there's any evidence beyond treating beyond that. So th- that's actually changed my practice as well. That's interesting. <laughs> Paul, it changed your practice in that you also stop after three years or in that you're uh, <laughs> oh, that's yeah. you, you, I've actually just uh, just stopped prescribing bisphosphonates in general. It just it's <laughs> just until there's more evidence for them. Yeah, I'm still not sold. Okay. And uh the last topic that we wanted to the last topic that we wanted to just review some of the points from the the t- the show on in flight emergencies where we talked with Dr. Angelica Zen. She is MedPeds trained and currently one of the chief residents at UCLA. Paul, what did you? What were the key take-homes there for you? Yeah, I, I love this episode just because it both played up to my baseline anxieties and sort of calmed them down a little bit. Because it just, I feel like there's two types of people, two types of doctors at least when they go on the airplane. Like there's a person who's just waiting for that call, and there's a person praying to God it doesn't happen. And I'm I'm for sure in the latter category. So hearing Dr. Dr. Zen talk, I, I actually, I'd like the points that she made. So the things that I took away from this is that, you know, at the end of the day, you're still a doctor. So no matter what happens, it'll probably be okay. You'll know what to do. And you don't think about this at the time. I, I wasn't aware of this until doing a little bit of homework, but you actually will have the benefit of a ground medical crew to consult with and to sort of provide guidance for things. Um, and as long as you kind of keep your head level and just do the things that you know how to do to take care of patients. So make sure they're not in the way, make sure that they're comfortable, respect their privacy and dignity. Like it's probably going to be all right. Um, along those same lines, legally, you're pretty protected if you take care of someone in the air. Um, don't practice drunk medicine. So if you've had a couple scotches, you're probably not the best person for the job. But as long as you're not actively and maliciously trying to cause harm, you're, you're pretty legally safe. Um, the other caveat that shows up in all the review articles is just don't pronounce death on international flights. So um, just keep that in your back pocket and hope to God you never have to use it. And then finally... Just have some familiarity with the contents of the medical kit. So there's going to be equipment. Some of it will be useful, some of it less so. So you'll have a stethoscope. But something that didn't occur to me um, is that you're just not going to be able to hear real well. And you'll have a blood pressure cuff, but it might not be great. And you'll have medications, but they may not be the doses that you're quite familiar with. So there'll be epinephrine, but whether it's the anaphylaxis dose or the ACLS dose, um, as as anyone's guess, because there is some variation among flight kits. But you'll have some bare-bones stuff, but... Bear in mind, there are going to be people on your flight probably who have glucometers or people who actually even have benzodiazepines. So if you need to MacGyver it a little bit, um, there there are probably other options available to you. So those are the things I took away from that episode. I think it was just a fun episode. Yeah, and it was just cool to talk about. Definitely a fun episode. I think I think the uh, the listeners really like that one as well. 
And they've had the Matt Watto shoelace trick for umbilical tie off. That's, that's right. Yeah. Well, that was that's a Jeff that's a Jeff Colburn patent. I can't uh, <laughs> I can't take credit for that one. I got to thank Jeff Colburn, uh, who we'll be talking to coming up very soon for another episode on diabetes. Okay. The last thing the last thing for this episode, I just wanted to go through and give the major lessons learned from 2016. So I I can start giving mine. Uh, this is from a book by Scott Adams, who is the uh, creator and writer and artist for the Dilbert comics. He has a book called How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Succeed. I just really like the core message on this book. He He's a great writer. It's it's very funny, but also filled with lots, lots of common sense wisdom. And the one line that stuck to me, stuck out to me was, Failure always brings something valuable with it. I don't leave it until I extract that value. Basically, um, don't be afraid to fail. When you do fail, you're learning something and keep trying. That's the only way you're going to get better. Well said. Okay, Stuart, would you like to, <laughs> um, would you like to say something? No, I just want to say. Are you trying to insert awkward? Are you trying to insert awkward pauses after everything I say? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're doing an exceptional job. <laughs> uh, at least I'm succeeding at something. Okay. So what what was your big? Okay. So uh, let's let's do a uh, lesson learned, guys. Come on. All right, Paul. Go ahead. So it's I was at a I think it was an SGIM conference. I can't even remember what the topic of the conference was, but the speaker brought up this concept of FABLO, which I was previously unfamiliar with, which is the fear of being left out. So I, it's I feel. I'm not sure how you, if you guys even have to deal with this so much, but particularly sort of early career faculty, sort of coming out of a chief resident year, I, you know, it's you're always told to say yes to everything, and then you, then you get to a point where you're actually a little bit hurt if someone doesn't offer you something, and it got to a point where I had myself spread just entirely too thin. So I, I think recognizing the fear of being left out can actually end up hurting not not your career necessarily, but can certainly add to your stress level, and and needlessly so. There's so much that you can do that interests you that you don't have to say yes to absolutely everything, and you can still. Um, be active and engaged and fulfilled without doing every single thing in the hospital or the clinic or whatever environment is that you work. So I guess this advice is specifically for early career faculty, at least, is yes, say yes to almost everything, but don't be afraid of being left out of some things because you'll be able to stay engaged, uh, I think, at every stage of your career. Yeah, I I think that's a a really good lesson. Um, And that's one I think that I even I've had learn recently. You know, being the father of an autistic daughter has been very difficult, very challenging, both professionally and personally. I think the biggest thing that I've been able to learn is not necessarily something from this podcast, is not necessarily something from work, but it's something from her. And it's that, and it, this kind of harkens back to what Dr. Centaur is saying, is understanding the basics. Understanding that when I'm talking to her, I have to be able to to reach down and understand what she knows and not use the curse of knowledge. So the curse of knowledge is going to get in, is going to impact my ability to reach out to her, to speak to her, to get her to understand. But similarly, that curse is also a problem when it talk, comes to educating my residents, my students. And so understanding how to educate and reach out to my autistic daughter has been the most empowering and most difficult challenge for me to to address this year. And I think that that alone encompasses a lot of things when it comes to understanding margin in our personal and professional lives. If I did not have margin in my professional life, then I wouldn't have the time to, to reach out to, and be able to, to break those barriers with my daughter. And I, we, we've got to understand that, that at, at least when it comes to me, that understanding um, like physician burnout, exceptionally important. Um, having margin in your personal life, exceptionally important. All these things kind of tie into understanding that you cannot just say yes to everything like you just said. And you have to also have to understand, though, that uh, there's a quote that I, that I keep editing on my board. And right now it says this. It says that it is not the absence of conflict but the ability, ability to solve conflict that defines a successful enterprise, be it personal or public, personal or private. Um, personal or public, rather. So in, in, in this case, understanding that it's not the fact that it, it's not getting rid of the conflict with my daughter. It's not getting rid of the conflict with my residents, my students. It's not getting rid of the conflict with even your spouse or your coworkers. It's the ability to approach it with a mindset that you're going to solve it. You're going to get to a solution that's going to be a compromise. You're going to lose, but you're also going to gain at the same time. And what you're gaining is that enterprise. It's that relationship. It's the ability to solve greater and bigger problems. Well, I'm not even going to try to add on any points to that. I think that was uh, well said. 
I think we're out of time. We've, as usual, gone longer than we intended to. <laughs> but uh, I had fun, so uh, I think I think uh, the audience will hopefully will hopefully enjoy this. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Brain hole, brain hole, brain hole. <laughs> you can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. At the Curbsiders, we are committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or send us feedback to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, you can follow us on our page on Facebook or on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And this is Paul Williams. Hi, Paul. (laughs) Okay, good night. (laughs)